Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Um, hopefully, we will get some more straggling in. Why don't we begin with a prayer? Um, sometimes when you pray, people show up. So let's, um, let's pray. O oh God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, again, welcome back and a blessed Advent to you all. We've begun the season of Advent since um, we were last together, and um, two weeks ago, I guess it was. And so today is the second Sunday in Advent, a season of four Sundays that lead up to Christmas, a time of preparation for the season um, of Christmas. So we're not at Christmas yet. We're in the season of Advent, um, looking forward not only to that time when we remember the first coming of our Lord on Christmas Day, but of course also looking forward to his second coming um, when he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. And and in fact, we'll be talking about that um, next week, about what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in the future. But let's recap where we were. Uh, We've spent some time looking at the creeds. We've been talking about, uh, we talked about the existence of God. We talked about some arguments um, that would lead us to believe in the existence of God. Then we asked the question, okay, we believe in God. What kind of God is this that we worship? We worship, of course, a triune God. And, um, And so we've been looking at the three persons of the Trinity. The last couple of weeks was the Father, of course who is creator, ruler, um, again, and father, the first person of the Trinity. And today we're going to move into our discussion of the second person of the Trinity. So um, I put a question up. Let me put it back up here at the beginning, as I always do. A little thought question. And the question is this. What's the connection between these two questions? Who is Jesus and who am I? It might seem like, well, I don't know that there is any connection. Well, For those of us who are Christians, there's actually a pretty profound connection between those two. Because one of the things that we learn through God's word is that what God wants to do in each and every one of you, in all of us, as we move forward in our Christian journey, is to make us look more and more like Jesus. So the more you learn about Jesus, the more you learn about where you are headed, what God is working in and through you as a Christian. So what's the connection? Well, the connection is who Jesus is, is who the Holy Spirit is helping me to become. So the more we learn about Jesus, again, the more we learn about um, our destination. So that's where we're going to turn our focus today, is on the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, um, again, we talked about God the Father. And um, in, in last week's discussion, there were two, you know, kind of controversial topics. We talked about what it means to be a child of God and how our understanding of that as Christians is is a little bit different than the world's understanding of what it means to be a child of God. And we also talked a little bit about the connection between um, our faith and science and how those things don't have to be in conflict. Often they're presented as being in conflict, um, but they don't have to be. But again, today our, our study is focus is going to be on the person of Jesus. And, and we're going to cover two areas in talking about God the Son. We're going to talk about the person of Christ, that is who he is, that's today's topic. And then next week we're going to talk about the work of Christ, that is what he has come to do, what he has already done 
and what he is going to do in the future. Now, the focus of our study, or sort of the guide of our study, had been the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. You'll notice here, of course, that the second section of the creed, which deals with the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the longest. Let me ask you, any, any guesses as to why that might be? Why the second section of the creeds might be the longest? What's the heart of Christianity? Christ, the person of Christ. Jesus Christ. So, if the heart of Christianity is the person of Christ, and to be a Christian is to have a personal relationship with him, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that, that what the creeds have the most to, to talk about is the person of Jesus. So that, that would be one reason. But another reason that that second section is the longest is because as the church was beginning to go out into the world and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, people had questions. People wanted to know, who, who is this son of God? And how is he connected to the other persons of the Trinity? And so these creeds were, were a way of answering some of those fundamental questions about who Jesus is, which again is what we're going to be talking about um, here today. So who is Jesus? Well, the first thing that we need to know about Jesus is that Jesus was fully human. This is a painting of Jesus when he was a boy um, in the temple You'll remember perhaps the story um, out of the gospel according to Luke where Jesus and his family went into Jerusalem to celebrate one of the great festivals and um, his folks, they were part of a big band of, of um, their fellow Jewish people and they were on their way back home where at some point along the way they realized that Jesus was not with them. Um, and I remember my own children, as they read the story, they said, how could they not have realized that Jesus was with them? You know, they're thinking, you wouldn't have left us behind. I said, well, you know, it was a big crowd. There were a lot of people. You know, it's like having a great big family tagging along. And um, so anyway, so they went back and found Jesus there in the temple. And it's important that we remember that, again, God was, or Jesus, rather, was uh, fully man. That is, he had to grow and learn. Um, the gospel, according to Luke, tells us that he grew in understanding. And that's what the creed is talking about, the Apostles' Creed, when it says that he is born of the Virgin Mary. Again, he is fully man. Fully human. He had a human body. He felt pain. He felt thirst. Ministry fatigued him. He slept. He ate. He went to the bathroom, all, all of those things. Now, now, talking about Jesus in this way, it might seem a little bit disrespectful, but it's vitally important that we understand this. Jesus experienced everything that you and I experience as a human being, including death. He had human emotions. He felt love. Uh, when his friend Lazarus died, he wept. He felt joy, anger, compassion for those who hurt. He sought solitude to pray. Now, why am I emphasizing this? I'm emphasizing this for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, because the Word of God teaches us, and we'll talk more about this next week, but the Word of God tells us that, that only a human sacrifice was appropriate to cover, to make up for our sins. Um, that's what the author of the book of Hebrews is talking about here. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So one of the things that, that the New Testament writers want us to understand is that he was fully human. 
And furthermore, it's important that we know that Jesus was fully human because um, we can draw great comfort knowing that everything that we experience, joys of life, the pain of life, um, just the little tedious aspects of life, all those things Jesus experienced on earth. I think this is perhaps best captured by the British author and poet Dorothy Sayers, um, who put it this way so beautifully. This is a long quote. I'm going to read it for you, but I just think it's so powerful. She said this. For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrow and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Now, there are times for every Christian, times when we go through difficulty and pain and hardship, where we ask a question that's a normal question. We might say, why, God, why? Why am I going through this? Why do I have to experience this suffering? And sometimes in this life, God will begin to answer that question. Sometimes he will. But sometimes we don't get the answer to that question on this side of the second coming. But what we do get is this. We, we get the reality, the comfort of knowing that God has experienced it all. He has experienced great pain. He has experienced the hardship of life. And so that's something that we need to hold fast to when we are in times of difficulty and disappointment and suffering. Um, that God's not aloof off on some fluffy cloud, but that he came and walked among us um, so that we might know that he knows what it is um, to walk on this planet. So who is the Jesus? First and foremost, um, he is fully human. Secondly, the creeds tell us that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, it it generally raises three questions. People want to know, well, first of all, what does that even mean? Second of all, did that really happen? And third of all, okay, so if it happened, what does it really mean for me? As for what the phrase virgin birth really means, it's um, a little bit of a misnomer. Oopsie, let me go back. Um... It would be better if we termed it, um, instead of the virgin birth, it really is a virgin conception. In other words, the birth of Jesus happened normally as every birth takes place. I mean, you, you can fill in all the sort of seventh grade squeamishness about you know, human birth and like what that's all about. Well, I mean, Jesus was born in a very nor- normal way, but he was conceived while his mother Mary remained a virgin. That's what that term, the virgin birth, is really referring to. It's the conception that's supernatural. He was, again, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, did it really happen? 
people ask. I mean, is this just some pious myth about Jesus as a way of kind of, you know, puffing him up, holding him up? And what we can say is this, both the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to to Luke provide a sober historic account of what happened. Both of them, it's clear, are intending to report history, not some pious myth, but history. And furthermore, both of those accounts, the, the account of Matthew and the account of Luke, they're actually independent accounts. Matthew gives Joseph's side of the story while Luke gives Mary's side of the story. So these are two independent accounts attesting to the virgin birth and witnessing that it happened. Well, thirdly, then, so what? Okay, so it's the virgin conception. We we believe that it happened. We have a witness, two independent witnesses that it happened, but does it really matter? What does it matter for me? What does it matter for us? And the truth is, really, the apostles didn't rely on the virgin birth when they went to, to tell people about Jesus and to argue and to explain that he was the son of God. The virgin birth wasn't like one of their main, you know, talking points, um, making the case for Jesus. Um, really, it's probably better to argue the reverse. Because Jesus was the son of God, we should not be surprised that he entered into the world in a supernatural way. So that's the virgin birth. Let me pause your questions about the virgin birth. about that? Okay. So, who is Jesus? He was fully human. He was born of a virgin. And finally, he is fully God. This is a picture, a painting of the transfiguration. It's actually a little bit hard to see on this slide, but there's Jesus in the center. And um, Elijah and Moses are, are straddling him. And here are the disciples, very frightened down um, there at the top of the mountain. This was the moment in Jesus' life, uh, in the moment of his earthly ministry, where I think his disciples got to see that he was most it was their clearest view that he was a divine, that he was very God, a very God. The Apostles' Creed puts it this way. Um, it refers to Jesus as God's only Son, our Lord. The Nicene Creed adds that Jesus is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And we add to this the Athanasian Creed. Whoa, pull the needle off the record. What's that? The Athanasian Creed. I know about the Apostles' Creed. I know about the Nicene Creed, but whoever heard of the Athanasian Creed, well, if you've got your little um, Foundations Field Guide, you can open it to the back there to page 864. And you will see there the Creed of Saint. Athanasius, or as my friend who is a Greek Orthodox priest who was named this, he said it's Athanasios. Okay, so I said, okay, Athanasios. But in the West, we tend to say Athanasius. And this is a third creed of the church. It's a creed to which I would say the majority of Christendom would ascribe. And it talks about um, the Trinity. And it talks about the nature of Jesus. And the Athanasian creed um, says, among other things, that Jesus was not made nor created, but begotten. Now, what on earth is this begotten business all about? Well, to understand the distinction that the Athanasian Creed is trying to make, is trying to draw out, it's already there, really, in the Nicene Creed, but the Athanasian Creed makes it very clear. 
When the Athanasian Creed says that Jesus was not made nor created but begotten, we need to understand what those terms mean. They're technical terms. We make something out of a material. You make origami out of paper. This building is made out of all sorts of wood and plaster and metal and materials. We make something out of um, materials. We create, th- th- those things that are created are those things that, that are made not out of something. So an idea, there's no physical material for an idea or a poem or a song. They're created out of nothing. There's no physical raw material that we start with to create those things. But we can only beget children out of ourselves. That is, when a child is conceived, although the mother and the father obviously played a role in the conception, they do not create the child. In other words, we don't choose our children's hair color or um, their temperament or what they were like, um, their height and so on. In fact, being a little bit of a stickler when Ellen was pregnant with our first child, she would say, you know, this, my body is you know, creating this, this child. I'd say, your body's not creating that child, it's begetting that child. It's, uh, so it, it, again, it, it, it is, it, it, it's of us, but it's not something that, that we have made. Now, the Nicene, Creed's, Nicene Creed explains that Jesus was eternally begotten of the Father. So he's of the substance of the Father. He's the one and only Son, but he is somehow, from the beginning of all time, of the Father, from the Father. So even though the Son entered the world on a certain day at a certain time, 2,000 and you know, odd years ago, that's not the beginning of the Son. That's just when he came to earth. The sun has always existed from before time. So it's kind of mind-blowing when you think about that. Eternally begotten of the Father. As the creed explains, the son is God from God. He is of one being with the Father. But that in the fullness of time, the second person of the Trinity became incarnate in the Virgin Mary, of the Virgin Mary and was made man, which is the creed's way of explaining that Jesus was both God and man at the same time, simultaneously. Now, let me pause here. I know this is kind of some heavy stuff, but questions? Okay. So who is Jesus? He's fully man. He was born of the Virgin. He is fully God. A question that often arises when we begin to talk about this is people say, well, can we really trust this? Can we really trust this? Um, I had a question recently from um, a member of the class about, for example, uh, the, um, what was that movie? It came out in the 90s. Um, Yes, thank you, Bruce, thank you. The Da Vinci Code, yes, the Da Vinci Code. Yes, right, so there are all sorts of questions about, okay, is this all just a bunch of made-up mumbo-jumbo? I mean, that's the question that arises. And furthermore, you might be asking, okay, Andrew, you're telling me that he's fully human, he's born a virgin, you know, fully divine, but, but who cares? I mean, really, what difference does this make that Jesus was both God and man? Um, what does this have to do with me? 
Because it can be easy to get lost in all, all of this. But what I want to say is just hang on with me. Because in order to understand what Jesus did for us, which we're going to talk about next week, we first need to understand who he is. The fact that he is both God and man, it has everything to do with what he has accomplished for us on the cross. So you need to, we're kind of laying the foundation for the cross of Jesus Christ next week. But as for the question, can all of this really be trusted? I mean, isn't this just some kind of pious myth? And to those who are skeptical, I I would say this. Consider first the things that Jesus said. Okay, when we were looking at the question of, can we really trust that Jesus was divine? Uh, People will say, well, Jesus never said he was God in the Bible. And to that, I want to respond with the things that Jesus said about himself. What did Jesus say? Uh, Jesus called God the Father and himself the Son in absolute terms. I and the Father are one. He indicated that they had a unique relationship between them. Which really, not to be confrontational, but it flies in the face of our, our, you know, if you go into the world, sort of the modern understanding is that all paths lead to God. Well, if all paths lead to God, then how could Jesus have a unique relationship with the Father? Either one or the other has to be true. And so Jesus' own words press back against that. Furthermore, Jesus dared to say that he came to inaugurate the long-expected kingdom of God. Um, when he, after he was reading from the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue, he said this, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus claimed that people can only enter the kingdom by responding to his call. He referred to himself as the fulfillment of all prophecy, saying that scripture bears witness about him. He called himself the light of the world. He presumed to forgive people's sins. And and for this, he was, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He was accused of blasphemy. And that's because his contemporaries understood precisely well that only God can forgive sins. So if someone says, I I forgive sins, well, then he's, he's claiming something that only God can claim. And on top of all that, Jesus said that he would return at the end of time to judge the world, to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, how in the world do we explain these claims? Jesus says all these things about himself that are true only of God. How do we explain that? One explanation was that he was crazy. Um, Another explanation is that he was some kind of a megalomaniac, a narcissist. I mean, you think about some of the modern day cults. We talked about this um, very briefly on our our first time together. But you think about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Some of you um, will remember when that happened. Or maybe some of you studied Jim Jones in Jonestown. All of these cult leaders who made claims about themselves, what they did is they developed all these cults around them to serve themselves, to do all sorts of terrible things in service of themselves. So if we were to put Jesus in that camp, then we would expect, Jesus is certainly saying self-centered things, so we would expect him to to create a kind of a a cult around him that served himself. And yet, what do we see in, in his actions? 
His actions are completely the opposite. His actions are completely self-giving, selfless. So he's absolutely self-centered in what he says, but he's absolutely selfless in what he does. He put on the servant's apron to wash his apostles' feet. And this symbolism shouldn't be lost on us. You know, Peter didn't want Jesus to wash his feet because that's what servants do. And you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, yes, I am going to wash your feet. She just got down like a servant and washed their feet, symbolizing what his whole life was about. Furthermore, he made no attempt to resist when he was mocked, flogged, spat on, crucified. He even prayed for the forgiveness of those who tortured him. Forgive them, Lord. So we have here this extraordinary paradox. Jesus is, again, self-centered in his words, but absolutely selfless in his actions. How do we resolve the paradox? We resolve it with the witness of the word of God. That Jesus is, in fact, the son of God, who, while being worthy of all praise, came to be our servant. And we add to this, of course, the resurrection. The disappearance of the body has never been explained away. And we have, as well, the reappearance of our Lord. All the apostles claim to have seen him many times in many places. And let's remember that, that these um, first apostles, I mean, th- these are, are tough fishermen. These are not the sorts of guys who are given to fits of fancy. In fact, when they first heard the report that um, Mary had seen Jesus, first they didn't believe it. You know, they're like, I will not believe it until they saw Jesus themselves. And their skepticism was overcome. And they believed. And furthermore, the only way really to explain the disciples' behavior after the resurrection is to acknowledge that they saw something miraculous. I mean, to put it another way, people are not willing to die for something that they know is a lie. In other words, if I know something is a lie, I'm not going to put my life out for that. Are you kidding me? So all of the apostles virtually were, um, were martyred and people don't die for something they know is a lie. No, quite the opposite. Um, instead of being disillusioned and intimidated, they came out of hiding. They confronted the Jewish authorities. They boldly proclaimed Jesus at great cost to themselves, being arrested over and over again, imprisoned, and again, eventually put to death, most of them. Nothing can account for this behavior unless they had witnessed something miraculous. So let's recap. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Mary, both human and divine. In the words of the Athanasian Creed, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the world's, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man. And as Article 2 of the 39 Articles of Religion, again, those are our Anglican statement of faith, Article 2 says this, two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and manhood were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man. We're going to pause.
pause there on the person of Christ. Next week, we'll talk about the work of Christ. Questions about all this. And it's kind of some heavy stuff. Yeah, he was, he was fantastic. Well, let me pray for y'all. We can go. Father, thank you, uh, Lord, for these, your sons and daughters. And Lord, thank you for just a chance to share a little time together and to get to know one another. And thank you for your son. And we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to see with the eyes of our heart who he is. Because who he is is um, who you're working on us to become. So, Father, bless us as we go our separate ways and um, strengthen us to face whatever challenges um, are ahead for this week and bring us back safely next week before we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.